Meanwhile, let us look at Hebrews chapter 13, the next to last message in this series as we've been tracking through the whole book of Hebrews, seeing this letter that is written to Jewish, primarily Jewish Christians having converted to faith in Christ and now being persecuted, excluded, cast out, and mistreated for the name of Christ, therefore tempted to leave their faith and go back to what is safer and easier, but herein being encouraged to not give up, but to endure and to cling to Jesus who is greater than anything else. So this morning we'll be looking at Hebrews 13 verses 9 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Samuel Clemens, also known as Mark Twain, said that man is a religious animal. In fact, he is the only religious animal. And as Samuel Clemens went on to elaborate on that, it was a very unflattering view of religion, as it turns out. But we can agree with him so far as we see that man is unique, uniquely religious among all of God's creatures. Religion being a word that describes the practices which come from beliefs which we hold about realities that we don't see with our eyes. The word religion has gotten, perhaps justifiably so, a bad rap these days partly because of false religions and partly because of bad applications of the truth. But religion itself is good and right and is given to us by God. It is God who calls us to believe certain things about the world, things we don't necessarily apprehend with our eyes. And because of those things that he calls us to believe, he calls us to live, practice a certain way. Worship, not just Sunday morning, but worship being our whole response to who God is. Worship is an expression of our religion, of those beliefs and those practices. And worship in many, I would probably even say most religions, is premised on our felt need to do something, to do something in order to pay our debts so that we will not be rejected. That's going to come up again, so let that soak in. For the most part, religious worship and religious practice is based on our need, which we feel, to do something so that we will not be rejected. Do something to pay our debts so that we will not be rejected. But what the gospel does, the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the heart of that. And it redirects our religion 
It redirects our religion so that our worship, rather than being about paying our debts through what we do so that we're not rejected by God, worship of God's people through the gospel is a response to the joy that the gospel brings. And in order to fuel that joy, to make that possible, the gospel has to redirect our worship in several key ways. And so in this letter to the Hebrews being written to Jewish Christians who have been excluded from the worship that had typified their entire upbringing, The author of Hebrews is showing that the gospel redirects our worship and our whole religion in a different way. And the first way that we see that it does that is that the gospel redirects our worship from what we do to what God has done. It redirects religion from what we do to what God has done. The author of Hebrews having assured us, as we saw last week, that Jesus will never change, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He then goes on to say, because he is unchanging, don't go on and look for some new thing or some different thing. Verse 9, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. What we're warned against here is any teaching different from the gospel message that comes to us through God's word. Now, these are diverse teachings, he says, which means there's more than one. And they are strange. The literal word there is alien. They are foreign. They are not the original truth that was given. So in the first century, when this is being written, just like in the 21st century today, there are many voices, diverse teachings, trying to lead God's people away from the truth that they have learned. And that is a danger. Now the real question that they're all trying to get at, and what it comes down to is this question, what strengthens you? What strengthens your heart? You know, he'd said it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That word strengthened means established, made confident, confirmed, made sure and secure. What makes us confident before God? What makes our hearts established and sure and secure? And because it's natural to wonder about that and worry about that even, am I secure? Am I confident? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what I need? Because that's a natural and common and almost universal worry and fear, there are many deceivers who are quick to offer an answer. So look at what it was for the Hebrew Christians in view today. Verse 9, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So the problem is, Food. Is anybody here worshiping food? Okay, actually, I shouldn't ask that. I'm sorry. That. Yes, foods, but not just foods. It's what the foods represented to the audience. We have to read this to the audience that's being addressed. In this case, Christians who converted from the Jewish faith and have now been excluded from the Jewish community. We need to see what the foods represented to them. And as we look on in the passage of Hebrews, we're going to see a connection to other things in the Old Testament worship, beginning with Leviticus 19. God tells his people, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after. And then he goes on to, uh, to explain that if you offer it in the wrong way, if you don't receive it in the right way, if you don't eat it in the right time, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, that your offering, and by extension you, will not be accepted. Now that, that's hard words to hear. 
if you've been excluded from the place of making an offering. The sacrifices of the animals made to God, described in the Old Testament, some of them, such as what's in view here, the peace offering, were to be eaten by the person offering the sacrifice. You would bring it to the temple. The priest would make the sacrifice, and then you receive the part that wasn't burned up by the sacrifice, the meat, and you would sit down and you would eat it. And what that showed, what that symbolized was, uh, was being accepted by God. It's like sitting down to have coffee with somebody. It's like you were just sitting down and having a meal with God, which showed his acceptance of you. You weren't banished from his presence. You were instead welcomed to the presence of God. You were accepted. So when God's people in the Old Testament would eat the food of the sacrifice, it reminded them that they were accepted by God. I was... I thought of this as my kids were watching a movie. They, they get fixated on certain movies and watch them over and over again. I can't help but see connections after a while, you know, after the fifth or sixth viewing. Uh, one of the movies, Crudes 2, it's you know, about his family. And one of the things that happens there is that there's a family living in prehistoric times, and they're trying to protect themselves from a, some dangerous creatures that live outside their walls. And so what they have to do every day is they have to put a pile of bananas outside the wall. And as long as they put the bananas there... They are secure. And then one day they find out that, oh no, somebody has taken the bananas away. And they just become weak with fear. They tremble, they scream, they're terrified. Their heart sinks because now their security is gone. What's going to keep them safe? Nothing is going to keep, that was their agreement. That's what made them secure from the danger that was out there. And before we laugh at these silly cartoon characters, we do the same things. You have something that you put out there that makes you feel secure, whether it's a certain number that you have to reach in your bank account or a certain person or people that you need to have in your life. And as long as you have their acceptance or their approval or their presence, you are secure, you are established, your heart is strengthened. Or whether it's a certain political party that has to be in power and as long as they're the ones making the laws and they're the ones running the show, then you feel secure. Your heart is strengthened. Or whether it's something as simple as daily habits and rituals that you perform that convince you that if I have done this, then I've put the bananas outside the door. I am safe from whatever else is out there to threaten me. Little things or big things that we do to strengthen our heart. But what happens when those things are threatened? When those things are removed, when the bananas are gone, when the bank account dips, when that person is no longer in our life, is our heart able to be strengthened anymore? Those things cannot ultimately succeed in what we intend them for. For the people in uh, Hebrews, the Jewish people who were following Jesus, they had relied for so long on that sign of fellowship, of, of eating the meal, the offering. And now they are banned from the temple. They are not allowed to even come in and make their sacrifice. How could they have the acceptance and fellowship of God? What will strengthen, establish, confirm their hearts if they can no longer share in the fellowship of the altar? And the author of Hebrews says, you don't need that anymore. Whether it's the sacrifice on the altar or the food restriction, dietary restrictions of the Jewish faith, or your performance, your achievement, your bank accounts, your, your peers, whatever it is that you look to for strength and for establishing your heart and giving you confidence. The author of Hebrews says you don't need that anymore because it's not about what you have done. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done 
The problem with these other things is that they don't work. The author of Hebrews has already mentioned it in Hebrews 9. He speaks of gifts and sacrifices that are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they deal only with food, with drink, with washings, regulations of the body imposed until the time of reformation. Or as we see in verse 9 of our passage today, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. These other things that we look to, to give us strength, to give us security, to make us feel established and grounded, they, they can't bear the burden that we're putting on them. They're not able to do it because they're not designed to. And so what the gospel through Jesus does, it, it redirects our religion that has thus far been all about, have I done the right things? Have I made the right sacrifice? Have I gotten the right people in my life? Have I joined the right church? Have I lived the right behavioral code? Am I doing the right things? And says, no, it's not about what you do. Romans 9, 16 says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not human will. Do I have the right intentions? Do I have the right plans? Am I making the right decisions? Or human exertion? Am I succeeding? Am I doing the things that need to be done? It's not about any of that. It's about the mercy of God. It's what God has already done. Do you look at your deeds and fear that you have not performed to the right standard? Do you weary yourself in obedience and good works Perhaps thinking all along that maybe the balance of the scales of justice still haven't tipped far enough in your favor in your favor yet. Or are you confident because you know you've done all the right things? In any case, your strength is not based on what you do, but on what God has done. What makes us confident and strong is that Jesus has done everything we need to do, and he gives it to us by grace. So that's the first big redirection of our religion from what you do to what he has done. But the author continues to show another way that the gospel redirects our religion to people who are being rejected by their community and who are now outcasts. He says in verse 10, hey, we have an altar from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. You know, speaking about the tent, he's talking about the priesthood and the sacrifices being made. And, and only a very limited number of people had the right to partake of that. The gospel redirects our religion and says, no, you who fear rejection are now anticipating a welcome. It redirects our religion from fearing rejection to anticipating a welcome. You have to look at that verse 10 in context of what we were just seeing. Faithful Jewish worshipers could bring their sacrifice to the temple. <clears throat> and that sacrifice would be made and the meal would be prepared. And they would sit at the table and symbolically be accepted by God. But for those who confessed Jesus, they were cut off and they were told, you can't be here. You're not welcome here anymore. And so goes the message to Christians throughout the ages. Cut off, unwelcome, excluded, unwanted, rejected by society and the world and culture. That's the norm. When we don't experience that, it's unusual. It is the norm that God's people are unwelcome and excluded because of the name of Christ. And so the author of Hebrews goes on to say, oh, you're rejected, you're cut off, you're not wanted. So what? You don't belong there anyway. You belong somewhere else. You don't get a voice in the public sphere. You don't get an invitation to the party. It doesn't matter. That's not where you belong. As Jesus said in John 17, 
in praying to the Father, praying for all who would believe on him, he said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The followers of Jesus need to remember that we don't belong. So rejection is not a tragedy. It doesn't undo us. It just makes sense. And so the author of Hebrews continues with the sacrifice imagery, whereas first he talked about the peace offerings. And you can picture the, the Hebrew Christian saying, but we can't make our peace offering and have fellowship with God anymore. He says, you don't need it. Your heart is not strengthened by foods. It's strengthened and established by grace. But they said, but what about the guilt offering, the sin offering? You see, that was another kind of offering where the animal that was sacrificed and brought in, its blood would be used for the sacrifice. And then the animal, the body of the animal would be taken outside of the community. And the reason for that was not just because it was gross. The reason for that was when you bring an animal to be sacrificed for sin, the, the sin of the people was symbolically put on the animal so that when the animal was killed, your sin was being punished. And then not only punished, but it was physically removed from the presence of the people. It was taken outside the community. And so he goes on to say that Jesus is also that offering for you in verses 11 and 12 the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin those bodies are burned outside the camp and in the same way jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood so the blood of the guilt and sin offering Jesus is that blood as well. And you can see that because his body was taken outside. And the gospel writers describe that process when Jesus was crucified. He wasn't crucified in the city, in the camp, in the area where people lived. He was taken outside. And that's where he suffered and endured shame and reproach. The author shows that's what happened to Jesus when he was crucified. Just as the body of the sacrificial animals were taken outside the city. As we saw already in our assurance of pardon. 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was put to shame because he was being punished for our sins. What the author is saying there is two things. Number one, Jesus has already endured the rejection that you fear and that you deserve. That's the premise of religion, is that we have done something to offend spiritual powers. We have to pay our debts, otherwise we will be rejected by them. But that rejection that you fear and actually deserve, Jesus has already taken it on himself. Your sins were put on him, and he paid the price for it. Just as we sang earlier, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted because you were condemned. He took our place in being punished and shamed. So that's one thing the author of Hebrews is saying with that. The other is that the acceptance that you desire, that sense of belonging and welcome, which is the goal of every religious endeavor to be at rest and peace and at home, that acceptance is a gift of God's grace because of Jesus. You don't have to work for it anymore. You don't fear rejection now. Instead, you anticipate a welcome. So paradoxically, if we want to avoid the real rejection, rejection by God, we have to do what verse 13 says and embrace another rejection. 
Let us go to Jesus outside the camp and let's share in his shame. Let's bear the reproach that he endured. It's like if you, if you go to an away game for your sports team. And, and I'm talking about like, a, a, you know, you go into the stadium and they are like obsessed about their team and they are nuts about it. And by you walking in with t- your team's colors, the away team, you're taking your life in your hands. Like you are exposing yourself to harassment and ridicule and perhaps open threats. You're bearing the shame of the one that you identify with. And then what happens when your team mops the floor with them? Then you share in their triumph. Yeah! Yeah, look at me. Yeah, I've got the colors on. If you had gone into that stadium hiding and embarrassed and not wanting anybody to see what team you were with until they won, and then you proudly show it off, does that work? No. Now, it's not on, the, not on the slides, but you know, Jesus at another point in Luke's gospel says, if anyone's ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of him. You know, if we want to hide our relationship to Jesus, if we want to tone down our commitment to him, if we want to adjust and, and make, make ourselves more acceptable to others by making Jesus less visible in us, then we are acting in shame of Jesus and we are refusing to bear the reproach that he has. It is only as we share in his reproach and his shame that we share in his triumph. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are those who, who say what they have to say to be acceptable by the people around them. Blessed are those who hold their tongues so that nobody will think they're one of those crazy followers of Jesus. No, it's blessed are the ones who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reason for that, there's a gospel reason for this, and I want to I make sure that that comes out very clear. The children of God are not troubled by rejection in the world because we will never be turned away from our home with God. And that order is very important. We don't fear rejection by the world because we know we'll never be turned away from our heavenly home. Or as verse 14 says, here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Listen to the gospel pattern of that. Religion says, do these things so that you will not be rejected. You know, identify with this religion. Boldly declare yourself to be a follower of this religion. Do these things we call you to do. And if you do that, you will not be rejected. But the gospel goes the other way around and says, Child of God, you are accepted. You have a heavenly home. Your citizenship is already in heaven from which you await a Savior. Therefore, because of that acceptance, because of the security that is promised to you, because you anticipate a welcome, You now have the courage to endure whatever shame you must endure, to experience whatever rejection you will experience, because that doesn't matter. You will never be turned away from the home that you have in Christ. So the gospel redirects our religion away from fearing rejection, so that if I don't get all my Christian ducks in a row and say all the right things and do all the right things, God's going to reject me, to God has accepted me in Jesus Christ. And now I anticipate a welcome, and that sets my course for how I endure difficulty in the world. In the third way, we see that the gospel redirects our religion. We see that it redirects from, from what we do to what God has done 
And from fearing rejection to anticipating a welcome, the last one is regarding our sacrifice. Because sacrifices are a big part of religion, aren't they? You know, in some form or another, not necessarily an animal sacrifice, but some sort of thing that you must give or do in order to pay your debt. Something that costs you. A costly gift that pays your debt so that you will not be rejected. A sacrifice is a, a gift to the gods, a payment because of your sin or your failure. And the gospel transforms the heart of what it means to sacrifice. And it redirects it from paying our debts to sharing our abundance. We go from paying our debts to sharing our abundance. Verse 15. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So what we're going to see in these next two verses is that the sacrifices that we give are both a way of us sharing our abundance with others. Rather than trying to pay back God. God does not require us to pay him back for grace. God is not saying, hey, I saved you, Chewbacca. Now you owe me a life debt. You've got to follow me and do whatever I tell you to do. You've got to be there for me. Like It's not a life debt situation where we're paying God back. Okay, God saved me. Now I have to love my enemies. Now I owe him a tithe. Now I owe him a Sabbath rest. Now I owe... No, that's not it. We don't pay God back. If we're paying him back, it's not grace. We don't pay back, we pay forward. We take the abundance that God has blessed us with and we redirect it to others. And so the first way we see this in verse 15 is through the sacrifice of praise. But what does that have to do with other people? Right? At first, that might seem a little weird because isn't praise, I mean, if you're cynical, praise is like feeding the ego of God. If you're good about it, you know, praise is telling of God's goodness and worthiness. But what does that have to do with other people? That's a God, that's a me and God thing, right? No, because praise does not just have a God word direction. Praise has a world word direction, an other word direction. Now listen to, to Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. Okay, we sing God's glory, we praise him, we tell of his goodness. But praise has a purpose. We see in the next verses. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. He's better than other gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Okay, follow me on this. Singing God's praises in the Psalms especially is often go among the nations, tell other people, sing God's praises, talk about how he's so much greater than their gods. This is not some annoying God's people going, ha ha, our gods are better than your gods, ha ha. No, that's not what praise is about. Praise is with compassion and with joy going to people and saying, look, what you're trusting in isn't going to do it for you. Your God cannot save. Whatever you're investing in, whatever you're hoping in, it's not going to work. We worship the God that really saves. Come worship him. Rejoice in him. Experience the same satisfaction that we experience. And as God's people are satisfied and joyful in him, they praise him. When we praise God, we're showing that we are satisfied because of him. And we invite others to share that joy. That's the nature, that's the heart of any praise, not just religious praise. You know, when I, 
when I experience a restaurant that I think is really good, my wife is there the next day. You know, like we want to share the praise, the good thing that we experience. When I see a movie I really like, Randy gets a text pretty quickly. Hey, man, this is an awesome movie. You're going to have to see this. You know, when you read a book that you really enjoy, you want to get it for somebody else. When you visit a place that you really enjoy, you want to tell other people about it and encourage them to go there. Praise invites others into the enjoyment that you experience. And so when we offer to God the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, we are telling other people, this is where happiness is found. This is where joy and satisfaction are found. We are sharing our abundance with other people. That's the sacrifice that we're making. And if you're not feeling that joy, if you're not compelled to invite others into the knowledge of God, perhaps you're not feeling the satisfaction of belonging to God which there could be a lot of reasons for that, but one that I want to suggest is that we, especially in 21st century American culture, we are taught, we are trained to be dissatisfied. We are trained that there's always something better that you haven't yet experienced. And that comes from Genesis 3. That's nothing new. That's the serpent whispering in Eve's ear, no, God's withholding his best. There's still more out there. And Eve believed the lie. And it led to a dissatisfaction that led to sin. We are trained to be dissatisfied. You need to reject that. And I like what, what David Nunez prayed for us in our prayer at the beginning of our worship, that, that our worship would reorient us. Did I say that right? Reorient us. There we go. That's where the emphasis goes. The worship would reorient us. It's like a map that says, here are the things you ought to get excited about. Here are the things you ought to be sad about. Here are the things you ought to rejoice in. Here's what's worth being happy about. Worship trains and teaches us where satisfaction is found. And as we feel that, as we sense that, we invite others to share in our joy, but not just with our words and our song and our testimony, but verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When, we, when our strength, our satisfaction, our worship goes towards money, what do we do with money? We cling it, we collect it, we, we hold on to it. When, when our strength, our, our establishment, our security comes from a certain individual, a relationship that we have, what do we do with that person? We cling to them. We're jealous of them. We don't want them with other people. We don't want them going away from us. We want them close to us. But when our strength, our security comes from a God who gives abundantly, it enables us to be generous. Instead of being stingy and, and holding tightly what we have, it frees us to be an overflow to others. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. When you share what you have, your time, your experience, your love, your home, your money, when you share these things, you are showing the abundance that comes from the God that you worship, that he is so trustworthy, so satisfying and so powerful that you don't fear that you will have lack and you can be generous. And when we do that, we are sharing that abundance and inviting others to experience the abundance of God. And so the gospel redirects that element of our worship so that our sacrifices are no longer about how we can pay our debts, but the sacrifices that we make are, how can I share my abundance that comes from God's gracious hand? As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> one closing thought I have for you. It's the difference between fixing what is broken and enjoying what has been restored. 
Other religions are about fixing what is broken. How can I fix my relationship with the deity? How can I fix my broken life? How can I fix this broken world? It's like always tinkering on a car, constantly trying to get it in working order to get the engine running. But what the gospel gives us is not fixing what's broken, but enjoying what is restored. It's not fixing the car in the garage. It's getting behind the driver's seat and taking it somewhere, which is what it's meant for. It's taking it to the beach, to the mountains, to visit your friends, wherever you want to go. The gospel gets us behind the wheel so that all your religious activity is no longer about tinkering and fixing and trying to fix what's broken, but it's instead, how can I live out and enjoy what has been fully restored? Because of Jesus, the brokenness has already been fixed. His commands to us and all of our religious obedience and activity are not about doing the things that we need to do to pay our debts so that we will not be rejected. Instead, it's about sharing our abundance because we are welcomed due to the work of Christ on our behalf. It's that work and that transformed view of what it means to follow God that we celebrate at the Lord's table. So join me as I pray and we prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do pray indeed that you would, through the Lord's Supper here, through what you have given us, this sacrament, Remind us of what is true. Write it deeply, more deeply on our hearts. And equip us for rightful obedience according to your gospel. Give us the joy of true religion. That Christ has done all we need. That we anticipate a glorious welcome. And until then we share the abundance that we have from your hand. We thank you for that in our Savior's name. Our kids are here, they can join us, but well, they were hiding just out of sight, that's it. I'm going to give them a chance to come on in and get situated so that they can hear what we have to say. Welcome back, kids. All right, kids, we're about to share in the Lord's Supper here, and we know you're going to be watching. So we want you to maybe have a little bit of an understanding of what we do. So we remind one another, we remind you what's going on here. And we just talked about letting our hearts be strengthened by grace, not by foods. And yet we stand here in front of some foods. So what's going on? What's going on is these foods point to the grace of God. And as we were to follow in the passage, we see that we have an altar that those who even served in the Holy of Holies have no right to eat because it is for those who serve and worship and follow Jesus Christ. Here we see a sacrifice. We speak of the body and the blood of Jesus because what we see here is several things. Number one, that Jesus had to take on human form, flesh and blood, because sin is that serious. Sin demands death. Sin demands death. And so for Jesus to take care of our sin, he had to take on flesh and die. So we confess that. Not only that, but as we eat it, we confess that I'm eating this and drinking this because I needed to die. Sin condemns me. Not people in general, not bad people, not other people, not those people. Me. When you take this bread, when you drink this cup, you are confessing, I deserve death under the righteous frown of a holy God. 
but there is one who took my place. A sacrifice whose blood made me perfect forever so that I didn't need to. He was dragged outside the camp. He was given shame. His blood was shed, not mine. You confess that. That it's not what you do, it's what he has done. But not only that, when you share in the bread and you drink the cup, you are confessing your union with Christ and your belief and your earnest hope and trust that it doesn't end here. But just as he who took on flesh and died rose again three days later and lives eternally in a glorified state, we who are by faith united to him will follow that same path and will be raised again with him forever. If that is not your hope, brothers and sisters, if that is not what you believe, do not eat, do not drink these things. Because to eat and to drink is to confess those very things. It's, an, it's a confession of faith. It's a confession of your sin and a confession of your trust in Christ. And to confess even by that action what you don't believe in your hearts is hypocrisy. And we don't want that for anyone. So let it pass by. There's no shame in that. No shame in honesty. But for all who believe, come and be strengthened by the grace of God. If you confess Christ, but you do not weep over your sin, if the grace of God to you is an excuse to live how you want and to ignore the call to follow him, you do not believe rightly and you are warned by these very elements that God will judge and punish your sin with death. And we who take these things do not do so on our own privacy as individuals. We do this together as the body of Christ. So if there's anything in your heart, whether you are withholding forgiveness from another or whether you are refusing to repent of your sin against another, you are breaking the unity of the body of Christ. Before you take these things, when I pray in a moment, confess that and commit to making it right. Before taking and sharing in the sign and symbol and seal of our unity in Christ. But to all who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, all whose hearts long to be strengthened by grace, come to the table of the Lord. Let us pray and prepare our hearts.